Welcome to this edition of The Technology Pill, a podcast that looks at how technology is reshaping our lives every day and exploring the different ways that governments and companies use tech to increase their power. My name is Gus Hossein, and I'm the Executive Director of Privacy International. And today, I'm here with Eva, and today we're looking at smart cities. So let me just say up front, I'm a huge fan of cities. Like cities is is where I live. It's where I grew up. When I travel places, it's to cities. I love cities so much that I actually read Jane Jacobs to my son at night before he goes to bed. I'm such a huge fan. And now we're dealing with what we're hearing is called smart cities. So-called smart cities have been popping up all over the world in different forms and pushed by different companies from Huawei's uh, smart city projects in countries like France and Uganda to Google's recently canceled Project Sidewalk in Toronto. But what actually are smart cities and why should we care about cities learning how to walk and talk? Eva, tell me, you've been working on smart cities for quite a while now. Why do smart cities interest you? So when I started working on smart cities, it was after I had spent quite a lot of time working on very targeted form of surveillance. And so I was looking into how government were maybe going after activists or political figures and uh, trying to hack into their computer, which is, you know, very interesting and a very important thing for question of democracy. But in a way, that kind of surveillance was affecting a very tiny portion of the population. And so for me, when I started working on smart cities, what immediately interested me was specifically the way they affect absolutely everyone. Everyone who steps in a city is going to be affected by the fact that this is a smart city. And it doesn't matter if you have a computer or not. It doesn't matter if you have a phone or not. The moment you step in the city, you know, you get exposed to the use of the technology that's embedded in the city. There is no question that technology is going to be embedded in our cities. Technologies are going to transform our cities. But how do we want that to happen? This is what I was still confused about. So for this podcast, we spoke to three people whose expertise is in urbanization and smart cities. And the first person we spoke to was from UCL. She has an expertise in smart cities, but also has done quite a lot of work on gender. I'm Ellie Cosgrave, Associate Professor at UCL, and my research interest is in urban innovation and policy. So I look at the ways in which kind of technology is transforming cities, but I also have a keen interest in gender and inclusive cities. So Ellie, first thing first, how do you define a smart city? My um, doctoral thesis was in the policy implications of the smart city. I started that research in 2009, which is when IBM launched its Smarter Planet campaign. And that's really the time where people started to pay attention to this idea of the smart city. It came out of these big tech companies like IBM, Siemens and Cisco, who were really pushing uh, the idea that their technologies could transform the world, but also specifically cities. So it did start off as a kind of technology push. 
And then what I saw happen was that word became a useful shorthand for people who were interested in exploring the world of big data, fine-grained sensing of the city, real-time information for urban management as it relates to urban development. So what happened then is that as that kind of became adopted in a relatively loose way from by different kind of uh, urban actors it got a bit confusing for everyone <laughs> and for me watching that play out was quite frustrating because it was like somebody invented a word and then for 10 years after that we were trying to work out what that word meant but it never had a clear definition and so everyone was starting to tie themselves in knots in order to define it rather than to use it as it was meant to be used, which was really just a sort of free-floating signifier for this thing about technology and cities, or particularly modern technology and cities. And so my perspective at the time was that we should all just chill out a bit about it, <laughs> not try to overdefine it, but to say that technology is already transforming our cities. How? What do we want from that, those technologies? And what? how do we want to change those technologies such that they suit our needs better. That means that we have to regulate in a certain way. We have to have certain types of visions and understanding of what we're trying to achieve. And we have to invest in tech and tech innovation. So what does a good city look like to you? In a very basic sense, things like City Mapper or Google Maps is representative of the types of technologies that transform city life by providing real-time information about the state of the city so that citizens can make better decisions um, in the moment about how they want to use and engage with the city. So these are real success stories of the ways in which big data has been put to effective use for urban, urban management. But they're not really the things that we point to when we talk about smart city projects. The things that we often point to are the ones where a city government or, or a national government has allocated a piece of land and branded it as a smart city so that we sell that idea to the world for all sorts of reasons, for, for um, global positioning, to 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 say that actually this is the place to be if you want to be at the cutting edge of green, clean, smart, big data business development. And the two massive projects that were really foundational in the smart city idea were um, Mazda City in Abu Dhabi and Songdo in Seoul. Mazda really sold itself as the place to be for clean energy, um, high-end research, and that it's the most sustainable place on the planet. Songdo was much more about a kind of business district that was a reclaimed land. Um, and this was really the test bed for ubiquitous sensing so that you've got, you've got um, sensors and monitors everywhere kind of taking the pulse literally of the city um, so that you can do better management. The problem with that definition or that, that way of selling the smart city is that in a sense it is a brand rather than 
a genuine transformation in what a city is and that you have somehow, if you go there, you'll see this completely alternate world of the smart city. And in that way, this kind of the selling of the smart city as a sort of deeply transformed place for the future is kind of, it never really feels like it's done. There is such a wide range of different projects, but to an extent, can you sort of walk us through what you see as the main problems with smart cities? So let's look at Mazda City. This was sold as the next best thing. Everyone should come here. Everyone should invest. It was a kind of international diplomacy project to position Abu Dhabi on the world stage for renewable technologies, which it's it's not known for before these types of projects were implemented. So you've got this huge vision of, of what this city is. And that was a big sell, right? That was a big vision that probably was never going to translate into something that could live up to that vision. So I think the first issue is this this overblowing of what the smart city can be, which kind of sets you up for failure. (laughs) But secondly, when you try and build these cities from scratch, it oversells the fact that the technology itself creates the vibrancy and vitality of city life. And we know that that's not true. The technology of the city, the infrastructure of the city is something that should help it function and should help it run smoothly. But the it is the vibrancy and connectedness of a place. So you end up building this snazzy city And nobody has any desire to actually live there. Businesses might want to locate there to be part of this vision. Universities might want to be there as well to position themselves on the cutting edge to align with that brand. But people themselves kind of, there's no other draw apart from work. Although they've tried to phase in by bringing students there first to the universities, you kind of have this empty shell of a city that needs to be populated. And unless that is managed effectively, you end up with a ghost town. If you want to talk about vibrancy and city life, particularly street life in the Western context, then you can't really do better than hanging out with a bit of Jane Jacobs. (laughs) So Jane Jacobs talked about the complexity and vibrancy of street life. And she described you know, having eyes on the street, uh, people around as um, a kind of inherent sense of safety and and vitality of any place. And we can kind of, it's it's pertinent when we we think of that in relation to cities like Mazdar and Songdo, which which have, you know, I have not been, but reported to be relatively quiet and empty without bustling street life which Jane Jacobs talked about as the sidewalk ballet, where you have these complex interactions that really is the stuff of cities. When we think about what is bad urban development, that would be developments that shut people off and away from one another. And so modern approaches to development often take quite an integrated approach. So TFL in London, Transport for London, you know, have a healthy streets campaign. So this is kind of understanding that health 
is a key outcome of the multiple aspects of the city. So this is how you move around the city, the level of pollution, what food is available and accessible to you, how safe you feel are all components of your health. And if we take a healthy streets lens, then we can look at all of those things in parallel and it would lead us to provide more space for things like active transport modes, which would be things like cycling and walking. Okay, so that makes a lot of sense. We, we need to think about smart cities in terms of a genuine transformation, vibrancy and health. Uh, yeah, that's one aspect of it. But I think, you know, at the start of this conversation, we talked about what a good smart city would look like. And I think the other very important side of this debate is who is a smart city going to be smart for? And so this is where I think it's really interesting to think about different lenses, like how is the city going to be smart for people who might be differently abled? And how is this city going to be smart for a woman and genderqueer people? And so that was the next bit I wanted to discuss with Ailey because that's actually one of her area of expertise. The ways in which we have designed cities over the last, let's say, 100 years has very much been with the view of a kind of standard urban citizen. And that urban citizen needs to go to work and come home again. <laughs> and so we design our city systems around the idea that we want to optimize the flow of people into the city in the mornings and out of the city in the evenings. And what the kind of implicit assumption behind that is, is that we should optimize the city for someone who is part of the paid daytime labor market. And that's a very specific individual in the city. And kind of because of social roles, it's kind of skewed towards men. And we know that there are all sorts of other types of activity that the city needs to facilitate and support, which kind of left peripheral. And these are particularly important when we think in terms of gender, where women often have much more caring responsibilities. They often need to take multi-stops, what is called trip chaining, where they're not just going from one place to another and back again, but have a lot of different activities that they need to do in any one moment. And that these are usually not from the periphery to the centre, but often around the periphery. And on top of that, they're usually less likely to um, have a vehicle and they're more likely to be encumbered. That might be pushing a pram, a wheelchair, carrying shopping. And so when we think about it in, in those terms, we see that mobility systems in particular are not, are not set up for those types of activity. They're often more expensive and less direct and much slower. And so we can see the ways in which when we, when we have unchecked assumption about who we are designing the city for, we inadvertently privilege one group over the other. And the group that is privileged is usually the group that designs the city <laughs> because you implicitly design for what you think would be useful. 
And so the people who design the city usually in the Western context are white middle class men. And so the city is really set up for them, not out of malice most of the time, but because that is what they they have assumed to be the most useful. And so creating a gender lens is really about trying to understand the different and uh, multiple and diverse needs of the city, which is dictated to some degree by gender. And that's the gendered activities that I was talking about before. But also we can think about it in terms of what are women allowed to do in public space? And that's, that's a very subjective experience but women are told from a very early age that they don't belong in public space from you know well-meaning older people usually to say that oh you know this is not a safe space for you make sure you're not out after dark make sure that you'll carry your keys between your fingers don't linger in public space and so a lot of the time the street itself is deemed the realm of the masculine that women must <laughs> must hide away from. So women don't tend, for example, to use benches in public spaces as much as men do. They don't tend to linger in parks as much as men do or use the public park infrastructure. And there are multiple ways in which when we understand those social conditions that we can include within our design much more appropriate spaces that include and take account of the social conditioning and social roles. But taking a gender lens is just a start. It opens up the possibility to understand that the city is multiple and there are multiple experiences going on at any one moment as described in Jane Jacobs' intricate sidewalk ballet. Of course, genderqueer people, disabled people, elderly people have different needs of the city, homeless people. How do we include them in urban design is something that is a key part of of my work and a lot of people are starting to understand the tools and techniques that we can use to ensure that their stories and their needs and their realities and experiences are incorporated into the design of the physical infrastructure of the city. The other thing that I wanted to just briefly mention was that the types of data that we collect when we are designing infrastructure is quite narrow. We're quite interested in things that we can measure that give us numbers. So we're quite interested in air quality. We're quite interested in number of cars or number of people on the street but we're not particularly interested in collecting data about people's desires about their fears about their their aspirations and feeding that into design it's usually something that we do on the side so that we can check the box to say we've done consultation but it's not really something that we use to guide our design principles and so there are a few tools that have been developed over the last 30 30 years or so that starts to codify the gendered experience of the city. These are things like women's safety audits, which is where a group of women go out into a part of the city, maybe a train station, and have a checklist of key things that they describe. 
So this might be things like sight lines. Are there lots of corners or dark spots for people to hide behind? Or levels of lighting or things like graffiti that might be markers for for something being feeling unlooked after. And so once that has been codified into these forms, then they kind of become a data in the in the way that engineers are more <laughs> can handle them a bit better. So it's not just a sort of focus group. Um, but that has been really helpful to create rec- clarity of recommendations on a solid evidence base for um, people to engage with. The other thing that's really important and that we really need is gender disaggregated data. So if we do not know how the experiences of, let's say, be a bit too binary about it, but of men and women differ, then we can't design for them. So when we start to disaggregate, well, what are the mobility patterns as they differ from men? And are we actually only designing for men? And is that a problem? If we don't have that data, we can't interrogate those questions and ensure that we're we're investing more evenly and more fairly. So purposefully collecting data around gendered experience is key. And then finally, there are really good examples, I think, particularly in Latin America, of people doing gender budgeting, which is to look at city budgets and disaggregate that into in gender terms. <laughs> so to see how we're actually spending our money differently on different groups of people. And to think about that in terms of equity, which means bringing people up to have the same experience and access to the cities, rather than equality, which is the amount of money we've spent. So, of course, you'll need to spend more money per capita on a disabled person to access a tube station than you would an able-bodied person, for example. So it's really using sound methods of interrogation of data alongside good understanding of gendered or the multiple and diverse experiences of the city in order to be able to make good and just decisions. So Ailey talked about the questions of vibrancy and what makes a city and all this interaction we have. So I wanted to find out more about that in particular and what that would look like in the global south and the differences that may exist in the way smart cities have been approached there. I'm Lakshmi Rajendran. Uh, My background is in architecture and urban planning. I'm currently a senior research fellow at School of Engineering and Built Environment at Anglo-Ruskin University. I kind of coordinate an interdisciplinary future cities research network, which looks into understanding and effectively responding to complex urban challenges. And I'm interested in resilient cities, inclusive cities, and health and well-being aspects within the city. And my work kind of compares global north and south in terms of you know, developing resilient urban futures. So I wanted to ask you, Lakshmi, what your definition of a smart city is. So the smart city, the whole concept kind of changes depending upon the context in which we are applying. For example, a smart city in India is completely different from a smart city in London because the issues and the challenges which the smart city caters to in different countries differs and different cities differs. 
for me based on my work experience and i see smart city as something which makes people's life efficient at the same time improves the quality of life of people so some of the debates and the challenges or, or the discourses within smart cities within urban planning and architecture or you know, urban studies is based on are we striking the balance of quality of life and effectiveness because smart cities always tend to be very technocratic in nature and it is more emphasis given on the effectiveness on the efficiency of people movement and no optimization of resources no optimization of resources in terms of energy and all that somewhere the quality of life kind of gets lost so i was wondering if you could highlight what you see as the key concerns with smart cities i mean already i think you are hinting at some of this but i was wondering if you had other concerns that maybe you want to highlight yeah so the level of success of smart cities depends on how much people are able to access the technology which is being provided in the smart cities so most of the smart cities have a very top down approach and a very uh, technocratic approach and the whole aspect of the social uh, dimension definitely you know is overlooked within the smart city initiatives so that is where the whole issue of inclusiveness you know the quality of life for people comes into play nevertheless i'm not kind of against technology as such but technology definitely plays a very important role in improve the quality of lives which is an important aspect of smart cities itself but the way technology is being promoted in terms within within the smart city i think is very uh, parochial or very limited in interest it doesn't have a very holistic approach as such so that is one of the main things so you you need to very you need to have a very holistic approach to the quality of life of people living in the city not just optimization of resources through the smart city initiatives so considering the social aspect of people everyday life of people how people navigate cities and what are the experiences these smart city initiatives play within the everyday experiences of city life plays a very important role for a successful smart city citizens should be co-producers within the smart city initiatives which would definitely be a more effective way of you know looking at uh, a smart city designing approach a good city is a city which is inclusive and livable okay so the whole concept of inclusivity and livability is grounded in the experiential domain of city designing i was wondering so why do you think smart cities have failed to really contribute to the social spaces to to make the city better the whole point of criticism or the debates you know what is happening in terms of the smart city failures and all that again lies in the very fact that how people behave the behavioral aspects within city are not being considered and it the most of the things which which comes on table when you talk about smart cities is the technology infrastructure at a very very hard infrastructure level the soft infrastructure is not considered okay there's amazing technology you try to put up in a specific place but actually you do not know whether everybody can have equal access to that technology so all these are ground realities are we looking at people as a very important you know part of smart city uh, solutions so that is one thing which is clearly missing in most of the initiatives and which is why you know there's quite a lot of debate and criticism on smart cities and again why i go back to india as a classic example is you know if you, if you look at an indian city it it, it is organic and it is you no know, it, it has multiple layers of social and cultural interaction which happens you have a very diverse kind of communities people 
from different backgrounds and uh, the places are multifunctional no it, it's really complex no if you take one uh, a public space in a sp- any any indian city and if you're trying to you know kind of put up a technology or you no know, so smart city initiative which is going to enhance the public space in any way you need to address all these multiple layers which are embedded no which which was what you know kind of missing and which was what was cited as one of the key failures for the smart cities i mean you've done obviously a lot of work also on comparing practices between the global north and the global south and yeah i was wondering if you would argue that like the patterns are quite similar in the development of smart cities in the global south versus the global north or would you say that you know it's quite hard to compare because every context is very specific so in terms of you no know, comparing global north and south in fact you no know, one of the one of the recent work which i'm currently doing is how we can learn resilience from the global south cities how the how the kind of complex situations and challenges in the global south can inform social innovations in the global north so there's this very interesting you know kind of link which we can use to actually do a cross learning you know between these two contexts so yeah although the differences are really sometimes almost diametrically opposite two contexts but there's quite a lot of cross learning which could be done looking just at the challenges and how people address these challenges differently i'm wondering sort of how you would see technology playing a role in uh, in improving people's lives what that would look like so technology plays a very important role in making cities good in the sense for me a good city is a city which is inclusive and livable and technology really plays a critical role in making inclusive societies as well as livable cities for example there's quite a lot of mobile applications which are being developed by certain you no know, um, city governments to address vulnerable populations one classic example which comes to my knowledge which i often cite in most of my presentations are the virtual warsaw which was developed in poland so this was developed so that to ensure there's equal accessibility and inclusiveness for visually impaired people in the city of warsaw so this is a kind of a you no know, smart city based technology on iot technology that kind of enables the visually impaired to uh, you know navigate city more easily so in this way you know such technologies does you no know, kind of being developed in so many different city contexts and addressing you no know, specific population aging population and you know disabled communities so technology plays a very important role in bringing all these communities together in cities So I think what we're learning from this is that there's no one way to experience or importantly design a city. That's right. And actually our next speaker wrote a book called How to Run a City Like Amazon. And how could we look at smart cities differently? How could we build cities that are not about this power issues of having tech companies influencing and shaping our cities and what would an alternative look like I'm uh, Rob Kitchen I'm a professor in the Maynooth University Social Sciences Institute and most of my research focuses on the relationship between technology society and space and predominantly around I guess smart city technologies of various forms can you sort of walk us through what you see as the main problems with smart cities. I think the key issue is actually really around governmentality 
and around governance. So it's about how behavior is managed as opposed to your data being taken or uh, used in some way or monetized in some way. So there are privacy harms and there's predictive privacy harms that come off of how some of the data is generated and how some of this technology works. The technology is also doing a range of other things around managing things like uh, movement or activity and so on. There's issues around social and spatial sorting. So making decisions about who gets to go where, how they get there, under what conditions, issues around redlining, so data feeding into decisions about maybe who, who can live where, so who gets loans, who gets tenancy, who gets job, and so on, into things like predictive profiling, particularly around things like predictive policing. So quite a lot of smart city initiatives have a kind of security. So there's a lot of kind of predictive policing elements within the smart city. So things like centralized control rooms and sharing data across different agencies and coordinated emergency response and so on. So there's elements of anticipatory governance in there. There's quite a bit that's to do with nudge. So it's about behavioral change. It's about getting people to maybe use energy in a different way or use transport in a different way. So to maybe nudge people out of driving into walking or cycling. And then there's questions there about, well, who who gets to decide who's nudged, how they're nudged, under what conditions, and so on. So there's a kind of a power thing within uh, nudge. There's always somebody who is the nudger and someone who's nudged. There's issues there around uh, security. So data security, uh, so cyber security onto some of these systems. And there's issues around control creep. So control creep is the idea that a technology designed for one purpose starts to get used for another so it might be that you have automatic number plate recognition that's designed for congestion that now starts to get used for ordinary policing that also starts to get used for national security and the technology might mutate into something else. So this has been like one of the concerns around some of these new COVID technologies that they won't disappear afterwards and they'll be repurposed. So it won't be about monitoring public health. It'll start to be used about monitoring movement in general and so on. So there's a, there's a potential that the technology creeps There's issues around governance and regulatory capture. So uh, systems that used to be delivered by the state, particularly by city municipalities, starts to get delivered by companies who also start to then get to set the the kind of regulatory framework around how how they operate. So it's kind of marketization and regulatory capture kinds of issues, which then raises issues around a kind of democracy and accountability of a delivery of urban services. And then it's slightly different to that, but related, going back to the security side of things, is if you make your city digitally networked and reliant on computation, then you also open it to it being hacked and it being hackable. So there are a whole number of examples now of bits of smart city technologies being hacked, so things like traffic lights being hacked or electricity systems or smart energy systems or water treatment plants or whatever it might be. Obviously, I mean, you highlighted a sort of fundamental question about the issue of like who gets to nudge and who gets to decide in what direction we're nudging people in. And so I'm wondering, can there be good uses of nudging? And also maybe just generally about technology, I suppose. So I'm wondering what you think could be good use of uh, technology in the city uh, and how do we mitigate maybe some of the cybersecurity issues? Yeah, so technology 
you know, it's an enabler to a large degree and it helps us do certain things, but it comes with certain costs and there are always benefits and some negative effects on these. And for me, the issue isn't to be against smart cities and say, look, we don't we don't want to use any of this technology when it could actually be useful. It's about finding ways of developing and using that technology that serves citizens and provides some level of technological sovereignty. So some level to the degree to which the technology actually serves citizens and not simply the interests of state or corporate profit. So there's always a bit of a balance there. So you know, I'm sure you get lots of benefit out of using your computer. The fact that we can do this interview while we're in two different countries and we can have a conversation via the computer, you know, has has utility. The question is always just a balance around who has power in the system, to what degree, does it disadvantage some people, does it discriminate, is it fair, is it equitous, does it promote the interests of some people over the interests of other people, and so on. So. There's always balance to be had there. And so that's kind of what I'm interested in. So I'm not one of these kind of Luddite people who say, look, we need to remove all the technology from cities and we we shouldn't be using this kind of technology. I'm more one of the kind of people who says, well, technology is productive in different ways and we need to try and find the positive side of that product rather than the kind of negative, pernicious side of it. Now, in terms of thinking about that, there's a couple of different ways that people have been coming at it. And generally, the way that we come at it is through a kind of procedural, legal, regulatory way. And we focus on things like privacy and data protection, a regulation of data markets and uh, the use of that. And we focus on things like cybersecurity and data security, from a, often from a very technical or a very legal kind of framework. And what we've been doing a bit in our work is to try and shift that thinking into into a more normative register so to start to think about what should be rather than what has to be so start to think about things like principles and value and ethos and the kind of a vision for what kind of smart city that we want to create rather than thinking about it through meeting obligations and compliance with existing law and regulation or to create new laws and so on And I don't think that goes on enough. So I don't think we necessarily have enough kind of thinking around moral philosophy about what kind of city do we want to create and live in. And so kind of thinking about this through things like ethics of care or citizenship or social justice, you know, so thinking about it in a frame that thinks about the city as a set of kind of social spatial relations and maybe kind of structural inequality and how we address that. So we start to think about justice and oppression and citizenship and equity and so on. Would you say that there are already cities or maybe spaces that take into account those questions of social justice and equity and citizenship? Would you say, at least maybe in some spaces, it's already part of the the discussion that's already impacting and transforming the public space? Or would you say this is still at a theoretical stage? There are some places where they've started to have these kind of wider normative debates. So, for example, like Barcelona would be a city where there's been a lot of discussion about this, particularly since 2015, where they had a change in government from a kind of a right wing to a left wing government. They didn't throw out the concept of smart city in its entirety. What they did was they said, look, we need to create a different type of smart city. 
And they came up with this notion of technological sovereignty. And they basically said, look, everything that we do has to serve the citizen first, uh, not necessarily corporations or state power. And they went down a line of saying, well, what would that look like? And so they've done a lot of using technology as a platform to have civic debate about interventions. So they have a large platform called Decedium, where people living in the city, you know, there's an issue comes up. And so rather than just have town hall meetings where you, where you invite people to come into a room, they, they will also discuss it online through this platform. And they have tens of thousands of people involved in those discussions rather than 200 that could fit in a local hall. So there's a, a way in which they're trying to use the technology to facilitate discussion and debate and kind of collective decision making. They've also moved to things like shifting away from proprietary software to open source software within the city. So they're having a kind of a different uh, way of uh, maybe using the technology and thinking about the technology in how they do urban governance. Somewhere like Medellin in Colombia has has this notion of social urbanism in the context of their smart city. That means that so say they have a testbed district, the condition within the testbed district is that it can't display, so it can't gentrify and displace people who already live there. So this technology doesn't come in, kind of transform the area, push people out and other people come in. It has to serve the people who are already there. I think this kind of normative debate took place quite a bit in Toronto in their kind of battles with uh, Sidewalk Lab and the Waterfront Development so although it didn't actually necessarily lead to a particular vision or an alternative plan, it did lead to a kind of a fairly sustained critique around what sidewalk labs were trying to do there. And interestingly, that, that debate did start around privacy, but very quickly moved to, to uh, governmentality and governance and democracy and who, who was actually in charge of that area and you know how how would people have a say? What would happen with the data? What would happen with the infrastructure? What would happen with public services and so on? So it, it started to become a more normative kind of debate about what should be, as opposed to how can we comply. We have to start with what kind of smart city do we want? In fact, what we actually need to start with is what kind of city do we want? You know, and do we want it to be smart? And if we want it to be smart, on what conditions do we want it to be smart? So it has to be framed normatively. If all we ever do is come at this through a kind of a procedural regulatory, it's always within the framework of an existing political economy. It's not going to change the underlying political economy. So there has to be a kind of a bigger political picture here. So so while things like focusing on privacy is good and about trying to ensure that we, we have some level of protection, the real solution is to actually change the nature of our society that actually generates this data in the first place and so on. Sorry, you're going to get a lot of barking now because there's a dog on the road and my four dogs have noticed. <laughs> so Eva, with this phenomenal journey you've just taken us on with all those people, what do we want the listeners to this podcast to take away from all of this? The main thing that I think came across all the interviews we conducted uh, was the question of who we are building smart cities for, who are the cities smart for. I think Ailey's example was particularly striking when she mentioned some of the key smart city projects. 
And in fact, those places turn out to be ghost towns because the companies that are building and selling those projects fail to understand the reality of human concerns and their way of life. Uh, Lakshmi talked about how often they are there to serve technocratic concerns and this is where quality of life gets lost. But all the speakers were also positive somehow. They all trust that technology can be harnessed to serve the public good. And one thing that I thought was interesting was this idea of a holistic city that Lakshmi was talking about and having a holistic approach to quality of life because I felt that it resonated very much with what Ellie was saying about using a lens to approach problems in a more thorough way. Like when you use a health lens, you start caring not just about how people move around the city, but also the quality of air and the noise level, for instance. And that to me is also very much related to the more political side of the discourse that Rob was addressing because cities are deeply political spaces. So if we want the city to serve everyone's interest and not the interest of certain groups, uh, or at least not just the interest of certain groups, uh, we need to start thinking about what we want cities to be like. And we need to think about our cities as places that address questions like ethics of care and social justice which I thought was a very radical idea and also an interesting way to reshape the debate we've been having about smart cities. That's an amazing way to close this off. Eva, I got to say, thank you so much for doing this work. You and I have been on this journey together for at least six years, and I've been looking at smart cities since before 2008 when they were previously sexy, but then the economic downturn took us down a different route. And it's just so interesting to see where the discourse is at now and where the developments are at now. Thanks for listening. Get involved with this topic by visiting our website, where we actually have a lot of content, mostly written by Eva, about smart cities. And you can join our mailing list that where you'll receive updates about some of the work that we're doing that's related to smart cities and beyond. You can like and subscribe to this podcast on the various platforms you use, and it's also available on our website at privacyinternational.org. Generally, just please come to our website and sign up to our mailings. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, Mastodon, YouTube, and Facebook. The music is courtesy of Sepia. This podcast is produced by Max Burnell for Privacy International.